keeping democracy alive with Bert Cohen. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're really seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shootings, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And the U.S. is involved in the world. There is the whole world economy. The U.S. is a big part of it. And how the world economy functions affects us greatly. On the first part of the show, we're going to be talking about uh, the World Bank and uh, how it is affecting the developing world, which, of course, affects us by stuff. Can they buy our stuff? Can they help make our stuff? On the second part of the show, we'll be talking about how this affects actual employment in the United States and the fact that these days with the unemployment, people tend to blame themselves, but that's not helping anybody, really. Well, as I said, the first part of the show, we're talking about the World Bank and our guest. I'm very pleased to have with us Bruce Rich. Are you there? I'm here, Bert. Excellent. Well, Bruce Rich is an attorney and author who has worked for many years with major U.S. environmental organizations on international development and finance issues. His new book, Foreclosing the Future, examines the World Bank Group's environmental and social track record over two decades, drawing on uh, an in-depth institutional knowledge, hundreds of case studies, and scores of internal and external reports and evaluations. Bruce Rich paints a picture of a bank still inflicting suffering on disenfranchised and vulnerable populations. His assessment of the bank's first year under its new president, uh, Jim Young Kim, leaves Rich calling for real leadership so that the bank can learn from experience rather than flee from it. And it does seem, in general, we never learn from history. That's the one thing we've learned from history. While most everyone, Bruce, has heard of the World Bank, what is its mission? Who gets to decide where the money goes and what the interest rates are? Well, the World Bank is a... uh you could think of it as the Vatican of international development uh, mm. in developing countries and uh, emerging economies. It was set up uh, uh, right actually at the end of World War II. The idea was that it would be a publicly funded institution from the rich nations of the world, at that time primarily the U.S. actually, to promote, uh, well, first reconstruction in Europe and then economic development and what's today called the developing world and so on. And it didn't do much in, for the reconstruction of Europe. The Marshall Plan handled that. So <clears throat> its mission from the beginning was to promote economic growth, prosperity, and the idea was peace also if in the ashes of World War II around the world through economic development. Uh, but it was a, uh, uh, a mission that was very much uh, uh, crafted in the, uh, uh, the, uh, the overwhelming power and, uh, of the United States, uh, to a secondary extent, Great Britain, in the aftermath of World War II, 
already dating back to the 70s when Robert McNamara headed the World Bank after, after his uh, involvement in the Vietnam War. Yeah. He declared that its mission, more specifically, was poverty alleviation, helping to help poor people in the poorer countries of the world. So that's the official mission. And uh, who makes the decisions? Well, mm. it's still the, the rich industrialized countries of the world. Uh, the United States has the biggest uh, decision-making share on its board of directors, uh, which represents the various countries, the European countries, Japan. But we've seen an increasing role, too, for newly emerging economies like uh, uh, China and, and Brazil and India. And how successful have they been uh, in achieving that goal that uh, Robert McNamara suggested in helping to alleviate poverty? Oh, well, that's a <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you asked that question, because... Uh, you know, the, the interesting thing about the bank is that there, there's hardly, there are very few institutions for which there's more documentation, more internal evaluations of the bank's performance, which are quite uh, 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 damning in many respects, and external studies and books, including by former uh, longstanding World Bank senior uh, officials and, and economists and so on. I, I can cite one example of a, 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 a gentleman, William Easterly, who teaches. He's a professor of economics at the New York University, and he he uh, he wrote a couple of books, which, uh, based on his 17 years' experience as a senior research economist at the World Bank, concluding that everything the World Bank has tried since the 1950s, every economic approach, uh, at least the, what it purported to do in theory, to promote poverty alleviation uh, and economic growth. That it had that it had failed uh, across the board, uh, and for his efforts, he was actually fired from the World Bank after he uh, summarized them in a uh, op-ed piece a few years ago for the Financial Times. But you, it's it's a similar story with their their internal reports that oftentimes the bank is lent for very big infrastructure projects, mm-hmm. uh, uh, more and more now just for mass transfers of uh, of money uh, to. Uh, to, to governments without sufficient uh, accountability, uh, and uh, the results have been have been very mixed. Uh, now, when a country is uh, does well in uh, uh, terms of economic growth and lifting people out of poverty, which which is for all the problems in China, which is certainly true of China, the bank takes credit. But the bank has a uh, the bank's contribution to, to Chinese development has been a less than a drop in the bucket. Wow. But in the mm. countries where it's, it's, it's played a much more important role financially, such uh-huh. as in sub-Saharan Africa, there you see that the record has been uh, terrible. And, uh, and, and then in that case, the management at the bank will say, well, uh, well we tried, but it's the fault of the, uh, of the governments of the countries. <laughs> well, if you just tuned in to the Bert Cohen Show, our guest now is Bruce Rich, author of the new book, Foreclosing the Future, looking at uh, the World Bank and... Uh, you know, insanity has been defined as doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Uh, and, and you write that in the late 1990s, an internal review of the bank's operations described the bank's underlying problem, which continues to this day as unfounded institutional optimism based on pervasive institutional amnesia. <laughs> Say more about that, if you would, please. Well, I'm glad you cited that particular report because... You could view it as the, uh, 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 a nicely almost literary summary from, from the bowels of the World Bank of what the, what the chronic institutional problem is. Uh, already beginning in the early 90s, there were, uh, there were uh, uh, internal reviews, studies of the bank, 
that examined the entire lending portfolio and its performance. And mm-hmm. uh, and one uh, 1992, which was done by a vice president of the World Bank named Willie Wappenhans, uh, called the Wappenhans Report. It was commissioned by the then president of the World Bank, uh, Louis Preston, who who come who had been head of the Morgan Bank in New York. And Preston asked the naive question, "Well, how?" How are all our loans and projects, you know, to, for poverty alleviation and so on? What's, what's the real performance? And this Waffenhans report looked at the whole portfolio and said, well, in reality, the uh, the performance has been very has been poor and getting worse because uh, of a quote loan approval culture end quote. That's to say that uh, whatever the written rules in the World Bank are for following certain policies and procedures, including important environmental and uh, you know social. Uh, impact uh, policies to, uh, to make sure their projects that first do no harm to people. Mm-hmm. That whatever the written rules, the, uh, in reality, uh, the unwritten rule that people are rewarded and promoted for pushing money out the door in mm-hmm. as big amounts as possible uh, is, 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 is what prevails, and that's why people are promoted. And it doesn't matter if the projects are of poor quality because it's the uh, rich country donor governments who, uh, in the end, will pick up the bill if there's failures. And uh, and 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 even before them, every uh, developing country government uh, promises to pay uh, back the World Bank as a preferred creditor out of general funds, wh- whether the wh- whatever the bank is financing is a success or not. So there's no financial accountability in the bank, and uh, and people are rewarded for pushing money out the door. The, the Wappenhansen's report said also had a very interesting observation. He said, that despite the fact that the World Bank is probably the biggest employer of a uh, biggest Ph.D. economists from the leading universities of the world that, that there is, I mean, uh, uh, the economic uh, appraisal documents for, for loans, the, the, the basic economic analysis document that's presented to the bank's board representing its member countries for approval, that these had degenerated into, quote, marketing devices, end quote, quote, simply to uh, market and push the, uh, uh, the loans uh, for approval through the board. So that that's that's the, the the reason that that's the fundamental flaw. I call it the sort of the bureaucratic original sin of the bank. <laughs> One important detail is that the uh, is that this is you you have to blame this not just on the bank's management, but it's really the uh, the uh, the rather hypocritical uh, uh, actions and lack of political will of its member countries are responsible for this because they're it's their representatives on the board that really don't. Uh, Act on these problems in the bank, despite the fact that they're they're well documented. Now, you know, in this system, uh, financial institutions making loans, they like to get paid back with interest. Now, here are wealthy countries that have a you know just flooded with capital, with you know money resources, in this developing world, which doesn't really have a lot of money. So, I am wondering, is it? The, the system itself that, you know, to expect to be paid back with interest, which, if you think about it, is is highly likely to make things more difficult for these developing countries because they got to pay back the loans with interest and given all the corruption and everything. Is that the problem? Or is, is it just, um, is part of the problem that the people most affected by these decisions have no ability to participate in the decision-making? It all comes from the top down. Or is that unrealistic, at least in terms of investment policy? Is that well, possible? Well, I would, I would say it's, it's, it's the latter issue that you mentioned, that the, 
supposedly the, the, the poor in, in developing countries and so on who are supposed to be the, 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 uh, their well-being is, and, and uh, is, is, is the rationale that the, that the bank puts forth for its existence, that the, it's, it's lending these, making these loans for all investments that are going to help the, the poor in poor countries. Well, that, that, in fact, they, they, it is top down. They have very little voice, and most of the, and there are too many cases where often the, oftentimes it's the, the poorest and most vulnerable, most marginalized populations that actually end up even worse off because of a, a number of these projects and so on. And uh, so, so that's uh, that, that, that's the real issue. The, the reason why the member countries don't don't uh, are outraged by the, the the state of affairs we've described is that there is. There are uh, very per- perverse uh, political incentives at work. You know, the uh, the rich countries have used the bank to to push forward uh, one big big uh, inter- international projects for which their companies uh, bid on for uh, for uh, procurement uh, consultancy contracts and so on to provide <laughs> goods and services. And also, the uh, particularly the U.S. has used the bank to promote internationally uh, economic policies of. Uh, uh, tr- one-sided uh, trade liberalization, uh, uh, favoring uh, foreign investment of the U.S. and other countries, uh, uh, pro-market uh, uh, policies, uh, anti-labor policies, mm-hmm. for example. Uh, which the term for that is, quote, labor flexibility, end quote. Sure. And, uh, and uh, to integrate uh, weaker countries into the international system in, in a one-sided way. So the U.S. uses, it for, uses the... And and it you know the finance ministers of uh, other leading in Western countries are, are on the same page with with respect to that. So a lot of it is making the world safe for uh, well to put it bluntly for uh, a certain uh, one-sided kind of a uh, uh, multinational capitalism. Hmm. But on the other side, the the, the borrowing governments one has to distinguish. Oftentimes, the borrowing governments uh, view these big loans, the ministers and the governments and that kind of thing. As real honeypots, as opportunities for corruption and political influence and that kind of thing. And that's why they like the big flows of money. And, that, and there's a lot of corruption. Uh, hearings in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee from 2004 through 2008, when I participated in uh, several times on the corruption in the World Bank and the multilateral banks, uh, uh, dug up information from expert witnesses that indicated that from 20 to 30 percent of the bank's lending every year. Is uh, to, to governments and so on, and and also to supporting the private sector internationally is corrupted, is is stolen uh, wow. by the uh, recipients in the developing countries, the government officials, corporate officials, and so on, laundered through international tax havens and so on. So the uh, uh, that that's the other uh, part of the perverse incentives that uh, uh, where the it comes out is just this pressure to keep the keep the money moving because. Uh, there are people profiting, but all for, oh, all sure. for the wrong uh, uh, reasons. Uh, well, alas. well, the fact that this has been pointed out in in the you know various hearings in Washington, you know the corruption yeah. thing, skimming off twenty to thirty percent, which is, I mean, it's it's massive. Are are is there any uh, uh, sign that this problem is being addressed? Are there signs of enhanced oversight? Or are they just Sweeping the problem under the rug. Well, the bank, you know, in, in the bank, they, uh, uh, the, President James Wolfenson, who was head of the bank from uh, 1985 through 1995, he raised uh, the corruption issue for the first time. Up to, up to then, everyone knew it was pervasive, but they they called it quote leakage unquote inside the oh, bank. When yeah. I when I first heard the term, I 
Uh, I was a bit naive at the time. I wonder what, what leakage. What is, is there a problem with the plumbing system in the World Bank offices or yeah. something? You know, they said no. But that's a, that's the the theft we just have to, to count on and so on. And and uh, but but there was there is resistance. The the borrowing governments, for example, and and the developing and the major developing country governments, China, India, Brazil, they resist more controls on corruption, more transparency as a an infringement of the you know rich industrialized north on their uh, economic uh-huh. sovereign on their sovereignty right. and then what we've seen is uh, behind the scenes some prominent western countries uh, you know the politically progressive politically correct western european countries uh, talk a good line but uh, in reality uh their uh, major companies have benefited a lot from the existing status quo of, of sure. giving bribes to get to Contracts, including on World Bank uh, uh, projects and so on, in the developing world. So, so there was a, both the donor countries, uh, the rich countries, and the uh, and the some of the major uh, developing countries. Uh, uh, actually, their governments had, had, uh, uh, sent conflicting signals and actually resist some uh, more more controls and Not so on. Sure. So, so the bank is you. They are trying to do things, but there's huge political pressure that. Uh, that, that keeps it re- relatively ineffective. Well, when it's so profitable for the lenders and the recipients, hey, why make a change here? You know, all yeah. the, the corruption is is legion. I'm reminded of so many of the uh, uh, development contracts within uh, that are you know not related to the World Bank, but for example, projects to help Afghanistan. They get skimmed off ten percent here, ten percent here. Oh, t- well, that's that's <laughs> even worse. I mean, the the bad news, unfortunately, is. <laughs> Is that the World Bank is arguably uh, no worse than the rest of us? Maybe maybe better than it's right. certainly better than most. I mean, I mean, I think the uh, uh, you pointed out that if you look at U.S. Uh, uh, so assistance programs in, in Iraq and Afghanistan and so on, obviously for it's uh, we, we know. I mean, there's enough press already indicating that it's a morass of corruption, and uh, so yeah. the bank is. Uh, 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 I, I focus in my book on, on the bank uh, because it's, it's a microcosm of, of, of a lot of much more critical problems plaguing the global economy in our world. We need uh, governance, for example, at the, you know, in, in many countries at the local, national level and at the international level to deal with issues like a, a pervasive, massive corruption, which has been growing over the past 20 years, to deal with the global environmental crisis, particularly climate change and so on, which I discuss a lot. Yes. But, we, but, the, but this governance is failing, and then it starts, alas, in the, uh, in, in the World Bank, which is, a, was, which is supposed to be a leader. And I do want to get on to that environmental uh, aspect. You know, in 1992, there was the Rio de Janeiro Earth Summit, the landmark UN Conference on Environment and Development, where 118 heads of state and numerous international development institutions, such as the World Bank, made wide-ranging commitments to address global environmental issues while helping the poor. Um, how's that going? Well, uh, uh, we... Uh, uh, it's, it's not just the poor performance of the World Bank, but it's, uh, you know, for anyone who's following the climate change issues, if you look at the, the history of the international climate negotiations, it's been uh, 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 very disappointing the, uh, that there, there have been uh, uh, north-south conflicts between the developing countries who argue uh, they have the right to emit greenhouse gas emissions to become rich just like the uh, the, the just as the rich right. industrialized Big countries issue, have, and, sure. who are, and it's the rich countries who are 
oh, now that they're prosperous, are declaring that, right. oh, okay, the rules have to change and so on. So. Right. And, the, uh, and the rich industrialized countries, well, uh, you know, are, uh, are increasingly debtor countries with a couple of exceptions. So they don't really have the, uh, the huge amounts of money needed to compensate China or India, for example, not to build new coal plants right. instead to invest in, in some cases, more expensive renewable energy. Is, uh, it's, it's, uh, that, that, that will never be forthcoming, we know, and so on. Yeah, so, the, so the so the uh, the bank in terms of climate and the environment and so on the record has been very uh, uh, very poor. I'll I'll give you one example from the numerous uh, internal studies that I cite uh, uh, from the World Bank. I, I I refer to the you could view these uh, these reams of internal studies over the decades that keep identifying the same problems as a. Uh, as kind of with no action by the bank's management or its member countries, it's, it's kind of like a Greek chorus in a, in a tragedy. Where, you know, where the chorus warns the actors of, of all the problems and that's going to disaster will <laughs> come if they don't do, do something. And then, of course, uh, uh, it's a tragedy because no one listens and so on. Well, the uh, the bank, for example, did a review of uh, uh, it's, uh, it, it, prom- it promoted a new environmental policy in 2001 where it declared that, you know, for the first time, it, it declared victory in terms of policies like environmental assessment and so on, so-called environmental safeguards, the, guards, the do-no-harm policies. And in reality, that, that wasn't the case. So the bank, because of this pressure to move the money out the door, in too many cases, those policies are not applied and violated. But the, in any case, they declared victory in 2001. And so now they were going to go on to, to quote, mainstream environmental concerns, etc., into the design of all new projects, do it upstream, upfront, and, and so on. So that, that, and that was widely publicized and so on. Uh, they declared the same thing right after the Rio Earth Summit in 1992, but the, the, uh, uh, along the lines of insti- the institutional amnesia theme, you know, what you mm-hmm. find is that in their policies, uh, every decade or so, they declare something as new, which they, uh, you can find that there's a policy document years before where they claimed to do the same thing, and it didn't happen. Well, in uh, around 2009, 2010, uh, the main uh, independent evaluation group inside the bank that prepares all these studies uh, looked at what happened to their big environmental strategy, and they concluded uh, that rather perversely, uh, after they declared their new strategy in 2001 to mainstream environment, uh, the, act- the attention to environmental concerns and the design of new projects uh, relentlessly declined during the first decade of the century, through around 2009. That's to say, there was less attention to environmental concerns and, and hugely important sectors like energy, transport, and agriculture uh, in 2009 uh, that, than there was in 2001. So it's, it, it's, it's almost hallucinatory yes. that you have a, a situation where the, uh, they declare a new policy for the world, and it's not just that the that it's, it's implementation is poor, but exactly the opposite happens. Amazing. Well, they're building all these big dams and yeah. coal and gold mines. Yeah. And I wonder, in Africa in particular, China has a massive presence these days. Is China a more viable source of development than the World Bank? And, and how are they on the issue of environmental sustainability? Well, you, you've, you've, you've identified a hugely important issue now that's become a, come to the fore rapidly in the past several years, and, and it also explains the, the reason for the bank's behavior. The bank, uh, China, for example, but China's not the only one, but China 
is has huge amounts of money. It has more. Uh, I think it has a. Uh, Two trillion dollars in foreign currency reserves. It's 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 by far the biggest creditor country in the world. And so on. you know, the, as we know, the U.S. is a debtor, and uh, you know, a lot of European countries are debtor, with the, ex- the important exception of Germany, of course. So they're uh, uh, the Chinese uh, Export Import Bank, which lends money abroad to, for the big projects to, to where right. Chinese goods and services will be purchased. It alone is lending twice as much uh, annually as the World Bank. And, and uh, the China Development Bank does a lot of foreign lending, is lending huge amounts, and so on and so on. And you're right, in sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America, a lot of the Chinese investment has been, frankly, to uh, uh, promote investment for extraction of, of, of natural resources mm-hmm. to, be, to yeah. be shipped to China. Yeah. Well, the World Bank, the Chinese pay... Uh, less attention to environmental concerns, social concerns, corruption, and so on. They go in even uh, in the cases where the World Bank refuses to lend, and so on. So that's a, that's a huge problem. The bank, uh, uh, though, rather than insisting on, on on its higher standards, which it has in theory, it has panicked and uh, instead is trying to. Uh, 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 be a partner of the Chinese and in, in, in lending and so on. I mean, I, I was, uh, I just learned, for example, of a huge multi-billion-dollar iron ore uh, mining and uh, extraction project in Afghanistan, where the Chinese are involved with the World Bank. For <laughs> so, uh, so that's not a. Uh, uh, I argue that the solution is right. is that the bank should focus on quality, uh, make its uh, projects and investments really good examples of environmental and sustainability and social equity, and if it, if by setting the, an example of how, uh, as a leader, of how things uh, uh, could and should be done, uh, that, that's how it can continue to have an influence. If it, by trying to compete and pushing money out the door as quickly and with as little and as few uh, uh, scruples uh, as, for example, the Chinese are doing now, <laughs> That's a, that's a losing game because the Chinese have a lot more money than the World Bank. <laughs> so there can be sustainable development if if uh, various different factors are taken into account. All is not lost, right? Well, I, I you know the bank the 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 the, the pity of the, with the World Bank is is that they have a lot of experience, often gained <laughs> unfortunately at the cost of the environment and of poor people in the developing world. But they that they have a lot of experience and and that they've they've conducted studies and reviews themselves on on how to uh, correct the mis- mistakes of uh, well for example of lending for large dams which was very uh, controversial for many years and they, they 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 came up with an exercise called the world commission on dams which came up with a, a bunch of a lot of good recommendations on how if you're going to build a dam to how to ensure that that it doesn't uh, destroy the environment and 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 benefits people and so on but the problem is the bank has uh, 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 when that study came out in the year 2000, they uh, they decided they weren't go- they were they weren't going to implement the recommendations because it would make it, it would make it too hard to, uh, to to push money out the door quickly for new dams. And similarly, they had a similar exercise in 2004 for extractive industries. That's to say, for mining yeah. big mining projects and oil and gas projects. And yeah. uh, and there too, that uh, that uh, that was a report that came out with a lot of good recommendations. One, they should that they shouldn't be fi- funding oil projects at all and mm-hmm. fossil fuel projects, and, and for mining projects, they they they, they they should pay a lot more attention to governance and corruption, those kinds of issues. And but the bank uh, also ignored uh, 
uh, a lot of the recommendations of that study. So that's the pity. There, there's the bank has a lot of experience where it could uh, show uh, uh, the right way to do things, but that uh, all the political incentives uh, perversely go in the opposite direction. Well, I always like to leave some degree of hope. People are not powerless. I assume Congress, if, if you communicate with your member of Congress, House and Senate, they do have some influence over the well, world. You, bank, well, right? you, I'm glad you mentioned that because the, uh, I guess the, the good news, and now we uh, we think now maybe of our Congress as a somewhat benighted institution and capable <laughs> of doing anything, but in reality, in the past, the real reforms that have taken place in the World Bank at, at different moments over the past 20 years, they've taken place because the U.S. Congress uh, got tough, and uh, oftentimes on a bi- bipartisan basis, there are uh, both... Uh, People like Barney Frank and uh, oh, yes. also Richard Luger, who uh-huh. was the, uh, the the moderate Republican, uh, you know, chairman in the 2000s of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, uh, they, they were leaders who really uh, got got tough. Uh, Patrick Leahy today, oh, who uh, yeah. from Vermont, Senator mm-hmm. Leahy, who was a uh, the House of, uh, the Senate Appropriations Committee. These are Congress people, senators, and congressmen who have really made a difference, and and the difference. Changes occurred in the bank when the U.S. Uh, Congress would uh, withhold, threaten to withhold or even actually withhold parts uh-huh. of the World Bank's funding from the United States if it didn't uh, make more progress on certain reforms. Well, and that's what we need today. It certainly is. Bruce Rich, the new book is Foreclosing the Future. And uh, thank you so much for being with us and yeah. shedding so much light onto this. And that's, that's Island Press. Ah, yes. And it can, you can get the book through Amazon and directly through Island Press, the Foreclosing the Future, the World Bank, and the Politics of Environmental Destruction. Thank you so much. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Swamp and his brow is smeared with the blood of the poor. Who rob life of its quality? Who render rage a necessity by turning countries into labor camps? Modern slavers and dragons, champions of freedom. And they call it democracy. Bruce Coburn there talking about the IMF and the World Bank. Uh, We're going to stay on the subject of the economy here. It's a world economy. It's all interrelated. We are all interdependent. And it's no secret that since uh, the great meltdown of 2008, there have been a lot of Americans out of work. Very, very difficult time. It's, It's different now from how it was in the earlier Great Depression of the 1930s, uh, people, I get the sense that, that individualism, belief in individualism, is still pervasive. They got away from that in the 1930s, but we seem to be back to that. So people oftentimes blame themselves. 
And there's lots of different uh, approaches to finding a job. And I'm very pleased uh, to have with us our guest now, uh, Ofer Sharon. His new book is called Flawed System, Flawed Self, Job Searching and Unemployment Experiences. Ofer Sharon teaches at MIT School of Management. His new book uh, is, as I said, what was your—thank you very much for being with us, Mr. Sharon. What, uh, what was your purpose in writing this book? purpose in writing this book is to really get underneath the numbers and understand the experience of what it's actually like to be job searching and unemployed in this economy. We're uh, inundated with, with stories about the fluctuations month to month in the unemployment rate. I don't think those numbers tell us that much, um, and they're really missing the, the deeper story of the experience um, and its consequences. And uh, tell us about some of your research methods. That's very, very interesting. So my, my, I'm a qualitative sociologist. I conducted in-depth interviews. I would sit down with people and talk for typically two hours, sometimes longer, oh. um, and, and, and ask them about their experience. In many cases, they told me by the end that no one had asked them before, that the um, they were really um, felt grateful that they had an opportunity to tell somebody uh, about what it's like to go through uh, the very tough experience they were going through. And, and another part of my uh, research was simply to observe uh, job search support groups. So I, I would go to uh, organizations, both in the U.S. and Israel, um, and watch the kind of... Uh, support being provided to job seekers, and job seekers talk with each other about their, um, uh, their search. Yeah, interesting. That, that's one of the most interesting uh, parts about it. You know, when, when unemployed white-collar Americans, of whom there are a lot, spend months or even years unsuccessfully job hunting, uh, over who is it that they blame? Uh, do they turn inward and sink you know, into mor- a morass of discouragement. How, how did, what did your, your research find on that subject? Yeah, so this was one of the most <clears throat> interesting things I, I came upon in the research was <clears throat> noticing that when people were first laid off, uh, I would ask them, so tell me about your, your career and, and what happened with your job. They would point to structural causes the economy, the big downturn, outsourcing, other factors. Sure, they're real. Like that. Yeah. Uh, everyone talks about those. But then as they proceeded with their job search, and at around three months or six months, if they were not able to find a job, which is the case for many, many, yes. uh, over four million today, yeah. they began to tell me things like, gosh, I'm starting to fear like there's something wrong with me. Uh, I feel flawed in some way. These are kinds of things that were very painful to talk about, typically would come uh, towards the end of the interview when people felt uh, a little more trust in me. Uh-huh. Um, and they would, would share these very painful fears. Um, and so that became a real focus of my research, to try to understand um, precisely why they were feeling this way and and. You know, it, individualism is not enough to explain it. Um, we could see that from the way they talked about losing their job. And 
in that case, they weren't uh, attributing it to themselves, but there was something distinct about the experience of not getting a new job. Um, and so I think what, what really the book um, shows is the linkage between that individualized, internalized experience and the way that we need to look for work, particularly in the white-collar world. Interesting. So looking at that, that's, boy, that's got to be challenging. And so as part of your research for the book, uh, Ofer, you, uh, you embedded yourself in the culture of the massive so-called self-help industry. What did you find about that that was good, and what disturbed you? So in the last 30 years, uh, job security for white-collar workers has significantly declined. Um, people are now facing themselves having to, to look for work uh, at all stages of their career. And alongside this has arisen a, um, a set of um, support structures, coaches, books, workshops, uh, that are very helpful in trying to orient job seekers strategically, trying to talk about how do you go about looking for work in this ex- new economy. It's it is very confusing. It's constantly changing. Um, and so there's a real need for this, and it serves that purpose well. The, the, the part that I found uh, could be done better is helping job seekers deal with uh, the self-blame that we talked about. Help Job seekers were repeatedly told uh, that they are in control of their search, that they could... Uh, if they took the right steps, networked the right way, um, wrote the resume in the right way, they could become masters of their own fate. And this kind of oh. discourse is, is, it's, it's comes from a, a well-intentioned place. It's meant to be encouraging, and it is initially inspiring. You feel like, okay, it's in my control. It's motivating. But the problem with it is that it doesn't, um, it leaves you ill-equipped to understand the months and months of rejections, which so often come. And particularly, here is the context of American job searching in the white-collar world, which makes us very vulnerable to self-blame. The way Mm. you have to look for work, if you're a white-collar worker, what I call the chemistry game in the book, uh, is is a, a mode of searching that is highly personalized and focused on networking. So I'm sure any listener that's been out there looking for work recently knows this and has heard it a thousand times that networking, networking, networking is the main path um, into good employment today. Networking is really about trying to establish interpersonal chemistry and a personal rapport Hmm. with others, really projecting... um, who you are in, in an authentic a way as you can so that you can create this connection with another who will then want to refer you, not only because they think you're skilled, but probably even more importantly because they like you and they want to work with you. Uh, now, given that that's how hiring works, which is has some real unfortunate uh, elements, but I don't think we're going to change that too quick, given that's how hiring works, uh, the process makes it, makes job seekers very vulnerable to feeling that they were personally rejected when they didn't get the job. It wasn't just their skills. Very often they know they have the skills, they have the education, they have the background. Um, 
what, what gets highlighted through this process of hiring uh, is a very personalized um, sense that I put myself out there, I tried to connect, and I was personally rejected. Now, given that that's what the hiring system, um, that's the, the, the dynamic caused by our hiring system, and given that we're not going to change it anytime soon, what we can really improve is, is the support we provide to job seekers to deal with it. Right? So what, what is really required is having a, a more structural understanding of the barriers that one faces. So it's not only your fault. People need uh, more of a sociological understanding, I would say, of the labor market and its obstacles, particularly for those who, are, who become long-term unemployed. These obstacles become enormous. Um, and understanding those obstacles helps resilience. I see that from my comparison to Israel. Yeah. When there's an understanding of the obstacles, then they're not personalized, they're not internalized, and, and people may be angry that the obstacles exist, as, as I think actually they should be, but they keep searching because it's not as if something is wrong with them that they're not getting a job. It's a system that makes it very hard and just requires uh, more and more attempts until hopefully one day it works. Oh. Yeah, we're uh, talking to Ofer Sharon, author of Flawed System, Flawed Self, Job Searching and Unemployment uh, Experiences. It's by the University of Chicago Press. And you did spend a good bit of your like, uh, life in the, uh, the state of Israel. I wonder if you could uh, talk about the work, the work of reentering the labor force in the U.S. versus that experience in the state of Israel. Talk about these differences and, and the tolls, different tolls it may take on the individual. It's surprisingly very different. Uh, so when I started my research, I thought, you know, if you're a high-tech engineer or a manager in a high-tech firm, both of these places where I studied were high-tech centers, Silicon Valley mostly, and um, Tel Aviv, and, and some in Boston. How different can it be? It turns out it's very, very different because the hiring system is very different. It, I described to you what it's like in the United States focused very much on networking, and then once you get the referral, if you're lucky, then a very personalized interview, um, which is described as a first date by many of my job seekers, made sure. this analogy in one way or another, that interviews with hiring managers were kind of like a first date, where you're, you're trying to build rapport, you're trying to get the other person to like you. Um, and again, this leads to this very personalized sense of rejection. In Israel, the system of hiring is very different. It's, it's based on, it's dominated by staffing agencies in, uh, in the beginning. For the first round, you're very rigidly screened uh, based on highly specific criteria. Uh, and if you make it through that screening, then you're put through a day of testing, which includes both kind of hard skills, math, language, um, and, and personality tests, group dynamic tests, uh, things that Israeli job seekers often feel are very arbitrary um, and, and don't allow them to showcase their underlying uh, strengths and, and potential to, to do the job. So now in Israel, job, you know, nowhere is unemployment a happy experience, right? Israeli job seekers yeah. 
are very frustrated. They're very angry. In many ways, they feel betrayed by the Israeli society um, for a whole host of reasons I could talk about. But what they don't do is they don't blame themselves. The, the hiring system makes really transparent the fact that there are these rigid barriers that are excluding them from the, high, from, from the labor market. This is an unintended consequence. It's just how the two places structure hiring produces a very different sense of why one is unemployed and therefore requires very different forms of support to help job seekers. Uh, and some of the lessons that I learned from Israel is that when job seekers have an understanding of the obstacles they face, in Israel, not because of any kind of support, but because it was more transparent, they are able to persevere and um, have more resilience in their job search because they don't internalize the problem. In the United States, I think we're set up to think it's our fault, and therefore we need to find ways to support people in recognizing the larger context. And actually, this is the the focus now of my new research, um, which is something I'm very excited about. It's, it's, um, it's trying to identify what are the most promising ways to support people who are finding themselves long-term unemployed. Um, and I'm, I'm really uh, excited that a whole bunch of career coaches and counselors in the Boston area, close to 40 now, have agreed to provide pro bono their service for free to um, long-term unemployed job seekers. Uh, and to let me and my research team track the, the results to see what looks like the most promising way, both for people to be able to get a job being long-term unemployed, which is very difficult, yeah. but also to maintain a sense of self and to have an understanding mm. of the larger structure in which they find themselves so, it's, so the experience is not of internalized self-blame. I'm, I'm launching that next week and really excited to to find some some helpful data out of that yeah certainly uh first date if you're feeling passionate toward the other person and thinking it would be a great fit and they say no and that happens again and again and again yeah wow that's pretty awful again we're talking with uh, Ofer sharon author of flawed system flawed self how are israeli and american white collar job seekers uh, expectations of the government's different? It's very different. Uh, in the United States, the job seekers I talked to had almost no expectations of the government. They, they, they had a hard time imagining what the government might do. They, they also um, had a sense because of this internalization that the problem really is one that lies with them and not it's a private problem, not a public problem. Um, and it was one they also felt some embarrassment about bringing up in public. So they, one of the clearest examples of this in the American context was during the Occupy Wall Street protests. I happened to um, know some unemployed job seekers who were very active uh, in Zuccotti in Park in, in, my, mm-hmm. in New York, and I, I interviewed them about their experience um, and their attempt to actually recruit other job seekers who are unemployed to make that a part of the visible um, protests of, of Occupy Wall Street, and they, they had no success in doing really? that. And, and when I, oh. 
you know, so if, you know, if you'll remember, I thought Wall Street was about inequality, it was about um, the 99%, but there was, there were no banners about unemployment. Oh, interesting. Uh, there was, there was, there was oh. very, very little um, focus on that. And, and when I talked to these activists who wanted to bring that issue uh, to focus, since it's a huge crisis, Yes. Um, they told me that when they tried to recruit their fellow unemployed job seekers to march under that banner, they were met with resistance. First, people didn't want to be out with their unemployment. They right. felt embarrassed, right. again, because of this internalized self-blame. Um, and also, another reason, which, which, which could be actually reasonable, is that they feared potential employers seeing them, whether on... Uh-huh street or more likely via social media, uh, as unemployed and discriminating against them on that basis. We, and we have a lot of evidence that that actually happens all the time, that, that wow. people are discriminated against on the basis of their unemployment status, um, creating a huge barrier to employment simply because you're unemployed. So that's, it seems to me, a big difference between now and the 1930s when, you know, when there was a similar widespread downward spiral. People did take it personally in the early days of, of the Great Depression, but after a time, discouraged and depressed individual Americans came to recognize, hey, it's not all their fault, uh, that there were much greater powers well beyond their control, and many took to the streets. We haven't arrived there. you know. And that given the fact that government policies such as tax incentives to ship jobs overseas and, you know, pay people far less for, for similar work, you know, the, the uh, race to the bottom. Given the fact that those government policies caused many of today's unemployment uh, problems, instead of just throwing the unemployed on the streets to fend for themselves, wh- why is it that we're not seeing the government now step in with incentives to provide the capital to stimulate st- such things as worker ownership, co-ops and and startups in general does the government of israel do any such thing that's a great question i i think the government responds to pressures um and currently in the united states there's very little pressure coming exactly, from yes um from the constituency of the unemployed when is the last time as you as you said there's we're not seeing uh large protests we're not seeing a lot of noise being made on this issue because so, this yeah. is uh, some of the most vulnerable members of our population, they feel often like it's their fault. Um, they are isolated, and our system of government is uh, is one that responds to uh, powerful interests and to interests when they are very well organized. Um, yes. And and clearly, we're we're far from being an organization like the type you described that did happen in the 1930s. Uh, Israel actually is, is a different case. Um, so currently the unemployment is, is, is not uh, as bad as it is in the United States. It, it was even worse in Israel in, the, in the, around 2005, 2006, when I, I was doing some of my initial research. And at that time there were protests about uh, unemployment, about the hiring system. Uh, there was pressure put on the government. There were some um, even legislation passed to regulate some of the worst abuses of staffing agencies. Uh, not enough, 
but um, the economy in Israel picked up enough to create more jobs, and so the the, the crisis uh, abetted. But it it was very interesting to see um, the different levels of political organization that that took place in the two places, and and I really attribute uh, some of that to the degree to which one blames themselves, views them, you know, ha- having a flawed self versus yes. a flawed system. And that's, you know, really the title of the book comes from these, this dichotomous way of thinking about the cause of unemployment and how it varies very much uh, across these two countries. Uh, really uh, amazing how powerless Americans have come to accept that we are, and we, we really are not powerless. I, it's amazing to me, when I talk to, to various different people, Democrats and Republicans, we see, hey, there's a lot of work that needs to be done, fixing roads and bridges and public work stuff like FDR did to address that last Great Depression. And you don't find pressure for that from the streets. You find nobody in Congress willing to talk about such things. But, uh, you know, and, and to, to blame yourself, I mean, I, you know, you can see why it happened and how horrible that is, and, and the terrible results that do happen. So, oh, for Sharon, thanks for being with us. Who should read your book? Who's your target audience? My target audience is anyone who is unemployed or knows somebody who is unemployed or wants to better understand the experience of unemployment in the United States. Um, the comparison to Israel, I think, really shines light on what is distinct and unique about the American experience, uh, I think it would be helpful to, to anyone wanting to understand what what the job search experience is like for anyone in, in this uh, economic environment. Well, thank you so much. Again, the book is called Flawed System, Flawed Self, Job Searching and Unemployment Experiences. The author is Ofer Sharon. It's by University of Chicago Press. Thanks very much for being with us, and perhaps get in touch when you uh, complete your Current research. I'd like to talk more about Oh, I, I, I certainly will. And, and thank you so much for having me on, Bart. All right, thank you. And it's all about working. Hey, hey.
1981 Flash album with Jeff Beck. That was actually him doing the vocals. 